Well, good morning, Frontline family. Welcome to church. It's my privilege to be with you all this morning and my privilege to preach this beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. As we continue this morning with our series, Preaching the Kingdom, we move today into part two of the principle of prayer. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at how Jesus starts in Matthew chapter 6 by pointing out three spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith and how he draws these important commonalities to how we should give, how we should pray, and how we should fast. He says of each of these disciplines that firstly, it's not a matter of when we do them, but how we do them and with what motive. Secondly, he says that we should be doing these things in secret, not drawing attention to ourselves, but rather we should be doing them as a way of connecting with our Father in heaven. And then finally, he says of all these disciplines that when we are obedient in doing the first two steps of actually doing them and doing them in more of a secretive manner, Jesus says that the Father himself will reward us openly. And as we've identified, church, right throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is cutting straight to the heart of the matter. He goes straight through the, the thin veneer of the outward appearance to the true condition of our hearts because he wants his followers to make sure that what they're doing in life and what they're doing for him is actually for him and not for the recognition and the applause of others. Because if that's the case... It's worth nothing. Jesus himself said that you will have no reward from your Father in heaven if your heart is inclined in the wrong direction. But if your heart is inclined in the direction of your Father, who sent his Son to die on your behalf, then you're doing well. Last week we, we started the principle of prayer, and in our time, looking at the way Jesus instructs us how not to pray and then correctly how to do it, he then moves on to what is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer, or as some would call it, the Disciples' Prayer. Most of us know of it as the Lord's Prayer, but certain biblical scholars say it's the Disciples' Prayer, right? They say that's a better term, but whether you call it the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer, I quite like the term Disciples' Prayer because what Jesus gives us here at church is a model or a template for how his disciples should be conducting their prayer lives. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus retreats on a hillside to speak to his disciples, to his closest followers. In Luke chapter 11, it was his disciples that asked him how to pray. And Jesus also at that point says, pray in this way. And he gives them the same prayer that we are looking at now in Matthew chapter 6. So whether you call it the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer, remember that this model of prayer includes very important elements given by Jesus to his closest followers on what he wants us to include in our prayer lives. Is that okay? The first element we looked at church last time was the element of relationship and role of adoration. In the Old Testament, only a few times is God ever referred to as the Father of Israel, but only in a collective sense, not in a personal sense. But when Jesus comes on the scene to usher in the new covenant, he refers to God being Father over 
70 times. Right? And I think that's significant. And because of what Jesus has accomplished, if you are a born-again believer, you have access to the Father Himself when you pray and you are welcomed into His presence. You have this, this intimacy with the Father. You have this opportunity to have intimacy with the Father Himself. And as believers, church, we are to hallow the name of our Father by setting apart His name and His nature and His character and by valuing Him completely different to everything and to everyone else. Jesus says, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And what a magnificent way to start your prayer, right? By acknowledging that you have access to the Father in this intimate relationship and that you are from the get-go setting, setting a standard in your life to exalt His name above everything else. The second element that we looked at was the element of surrender and submission to God's rule. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10 says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And yes, the kingdom of God will manifest someday. Some want it to happen quicker than others. But it will happen someday, church. And while we are still fighting the good fight, this side of eternity, we need to surrender and submit to God's rule and authority over our lives. And this is such an important element in our Christian lives and how we pray because we all have a tendency to, be, to want to be the king of our own hearts, don't we? But to be followers of Jesus means to submit and surrender everything to His Lordship over our lives. It means to align our will with His will. It's coming to that place where you and I realize, Lord, I can do nothing without you. I cannot be successful. I cannot be victorious in any part of my life apart from you. So I want your strategy and will for my life to be accomplished. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in my family, in my business, over my addictions, over my weaknesses, as it is in heaven. Lord, I submit and surrender everything to you. And church, can you start to see how important this model prayer is when we don't just see it as some religious prayer that we recite again and again? There's great, there's great power in this prayer if we understand what God and what the Lord is truly saying here. The third element I want us to have a look at today is the element of provision. The next part of the, this prayer switches gears. Now that we've acknowledged our relationship with the Father and set His name apart from everything else, and now that we're in a place of, of surrender and submission to His will, we come now into a position where we can begin asking petitions on our behalf. And what you notice immediately, church, is that the prayer changes from yours to us. Right? The first part is about God. The second part is about us. The first part is, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And now you'll notice it's give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation and so on. There's a change that takes place. 
And here in verse 11 where it says, Give us this day our daily bread, at first glance, church, that little phrase in this prayer seems really irrelevant for us living in modern society. Because usually we don't have a problem with our daily provision. Usually our problem is we're on diet, so, so God, re restrain me from eating that. right? Keep that dessert away from me. Or, or keep that, that packet of salt and vinegar chips away from me. I'm speaking about myself now. Right? Keep that bread away from me because you know what? It's full of carbs. Keep that temptation away from me, Lord, right? But in that day and age, when they lived day by day, mouth to mouth, the idea was, I never outgrow my dependence upon God. You see, church, Jesus never taught us to pray, give us this month a monthly paycheck, but give us this day our daily bread. And you see, church, it's a daily acknowledgement that the meals I eat, the money I spend, the relationships that I have, the resources I enjoy, God has given them to me today. And church, do you realize that God actually promises to take care of your needs? Do you believe that intellectually or do you really believe that? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 to 33, He says, Therefore do not worry, saying, What you shall eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your Father, your heavenly Father, knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. He also says in Luke chapter 12, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, he says, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. And he says, of how much more value are you than the birds? God promises to take care of your needs. And church, an important thing to note here is that, yes, God promises to take care of your needs, but He never promises to take care of your greeds. Right? And I know you're saying, oh, but God, I really need this new iPhone 14. Or I need this new car. Right? Or I need this new mountain bike. Where's Franco? He's on his mountain bike this morning. <laughs> I need it. It's a real need. I cannot survive without it. Right? I hate to break the, the bad news to you this morning, but you can't survive without it. Whatever you need, God will provide. And you see, church, the point here is that our dependency should be on God, whether it's in times of abundance or in times of lack. It reminds me of a story I read about one of the great men of faith, George Mueller. And he had an orphanage in England and ran that orphanage day by day, depending on God. He didn't have excess supplies or, or overflow of finances to run the orphanage from day one. It was a daily dependence upon God's ability to supply whatever they needed. And throughout the years of him running the orphanage, which had in excess of 300 children, they ran out of food many times. And on one occasion, the house mother of the orphanage tells the story that 
The children were all dressed and ready for school one morning, but there was no food to eat. So she immediately went and, and informed George Mueller. George asked her to take the 300 children into the dining room and, and have them sit at the tables. The children came in and they, they kind of glanced at each other a bit perplexed. And some of them were even brave enough to, to remind Mr. Mueller that there was no food to eat. Right? He acknowledged that fact, but he said that they should give thanks anyway. He prayed and thanked the Lord for His promise to give them their, their daily bread and, and to meet their needs. He prayed and reminded the Lord that He was doing His business and that the children were hungry. George knew that God would provide food for the children as He always did. Within minutes, a baker knocked on his door. Mr. Mueller, he said, last night I couldn't sleep. Somehow I knew that you would need bread this morning, so I got up very early and baked three batches for you. I will bring it in. True story. Soon there was another knock at the door. It was the milkman. His cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage. One of the wheels had fallen off, and the milk would spoil by the time that the wheel was fixed. So he said to Mr. Mueller, would you like some free milk? George smiled as the milkman brought in 10 large cans of milk, and it was just enough food and milk to, to feed those children. At church, it's only when you have experiences like that that you know that your God is real. It's only when you have experiences like that that you know that He can be trusted. God wants us to have a daily dependency on Him in spite of the fact that we might have plenty of choices. And if you've been alive long enough, you know that there will be times of abundance and times of lack, but God always provides, God always makes a way. Is there a witness in the house to His faithfulness this morning? The fourth element, church, that I want us to look at in this prayer is the element of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And I want to go a little bit deeper into this part, this element this morning. So I want you to please stay engaged with me as we go through this, because I believe there are some important principles that we can all learn. Verse 12 says, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. A lot of us know it as forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that, that trespass against us. And church, an important thing that we need to understand from this verse is that we have a deep need to be made right in the sight of God. The element of repentance and forgiveness are petitions that every soul needs to face as part of their prayer life. If you sit down and think about it for a few moments, I'm sure you will agree with me that the most essential and the most difficult and the most blessed thing that God has ever had to do throughout all of eternity was to provide man with the forgiveness of sins. Number one, it is the most essential thing because it keeps us from eternal hell and gives us joy in the midst of this life. Number two, it is the most difficult thing that God has ever had to do because it cost the Son of God His life on a cross. But number three, it is the most blessed thing that has ever happened because, church, it introduces us into fellowship with God, a fellowship that goes on forever. 
You see, sin has a twofold effect. It damns man forever. That's its future effect. And its present effect, church, is that it robs man of the fullness of life by drowning his conscience with unrelieved and unrelenting guilt, which results in many other things like a lack of peace, joy, and fulfillment in life. Right? It even leads to, to emotional and psychological uh, health problems as well as even physical health problems, mental health problems. As we face the problem of sin, church, we face the fact that sin brings immediate consequences, as I mentioned, like things of guilt and the loss of meaningfulness, peace and joy in life. And the future consequence that sin brings is eternal damnation. Sin then, without doubt, is the major need or the major problem for which there is a need for a solution in the life of man. If you just think about human life for a moment, where sin is unforgiven, we have to face the fact of what guilt and condemnation does to our own conscience, never mind how it affects society. Theologian John Stott, in one of his books, shares a quote from the head of a large British hospital. And the, this senior phys physician says, I could dismiss half of my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of their forgiveness. Whether we think about it or not, church, forgiveness is man's deepest need now and in the future. The first and most basic need on, on the part of the inner man is the forgiveness of sins. That's man's deepest spiritual need, and that is where God and man must meet first of all before God can ever lead us at all. A holy God can only entertain a relationship with us if our sins have been dealt with. And church, you may say, but pastor, that's easy. You know what? I'm sorted with regards to sin. I've given my heart to Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that my sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. The Lord says that he will remember my sin no more. That's what my Jesus has done on the cross for me, right? So pastor, if I'm already forgiven in Christ, if all my sins, you know, have been dealt with at the cross, I don't have to ask for forgiveness again, do I? Pastor, explain that one to me. At church, that is one of the questions that has confused a lot of Christians in, in their Christian lives. Some people will even go to the extent where they say, you know what, this prayer is actually for unbelievers. That's why it speaks about asking for forgiveness of sins. But if that were the case, it would not start by saying, our Father, right? No, this is a believer's prayer. This is a disciple's prayer. You are already a Christian. You are already a, a Christ follower by the time that you get to verse 12. And again, you may say, but if I'm already a Christian and all my sins are forgiven, why am I, what am I doing saying, forgive us our debts? Now, church, I'm going to explain this as best as I can. And let me start off by saying that there are two aspects of forgiveness in our Christian lives. Number one, there is judicial forgiveness. And number two, there is relational forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness is the full 
complete forgiveness settled by God as the moral judge of the universe. And in so doing, our sins, past, present, and future, are totally, completely, and forever forgiven. We are justified and declared righteous eternally. Now that happens when you're saved. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, at that moment, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. And you who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God are instantly made righteous with Christ. That's what it says in Romans chapter 3. Hallelujah. And as soon as you do that, God says you are declared righteous. And that's why it says in Romans chapter 8 verse 35, Who shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ that has allowed us this position of righteousness? And maybe you can answer, answer this question for me. Shall tribulation? You can say no. Or distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or peril? Or sword? No. It says in verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Amen? In other words, church, no one can ever lay claim to God's elect. You need to take hold of that fact this morning. And you could say it like this. It involves God taking away our sin, God covering our sin, God blotting out our sin, and God forgetting our sin. It is done with and settled for good. That's judicial forgiveness. Relational forgiveness, church, on the other hand, is where, God is not, is where we're not dealing with God as a righteous judge. We are dealing with God here as a loving father. Even though you have been forgiven judicially and forever that is settled, the truth is we still sin, don't we? Right? We are still sinners. And church, when we sin, something happens in our relationship to God. The relationship doesn't end, but something is lost in the intimacy of it, right? Something is lost in the intimacy of our relationship of God with God when we sin. To give an illustration, if my children sin against me by lying to me or disobeying me or doing something deceitful behind my back, the relationship doesn't end. They're still my children and I'm still their father. And there is a certain forgiveness in my heart that is automatic because they are in my family. I'm in relationship with them. But something in this relationship that causes a loss of intimacy will remain that way until they come and say, Dad, I'm sorry. And intimacy is restored again. Right? You know, I'm happily married to, to Pastor Renell, and it's, it's getting better all the time. Amen. <laughs> and, if, and if I should sin against her by, you know, Let's say, for instance, making an important decision without her that could affect our future or by saying something very hurtful to her. That doesn't end our relationship. 
And there is a sense in which I am forgiven because I'm under the umbrella of her constant love. But even though I'm under the umbrella of her love, there is something that is lost in our intimacy until I ask for forgiveness. Right? Once I do that, as soon as I do that, church, and my behavior is in alignment with my words, intimacy is found again. That's what Jesus is talking about here. This is not some unbeliever praying for salvation or some Christian pleading that God will forgive his sins. What we're talking about here, church, is forgiveness. This is important. I want you to get this. It's forgiveness that gives us fullness of joy in intimacy with God. It is finding and fulfilling all that the relationship can be. That's what he's talking about. I want to give you a, a biblical example. We all know the story about how David fell into sin and committed adultery and even went on to, to murder the husband and the wife that he fell into adultery with. You know the story. But what I want to show you in Psalm chapter 51 is how he responds. And I want you to see the nature of, of his prayer. Because this is the prayer that comes out of his guilt-ridden blood-stained heart as he reflects on his sin. He says in verse 3 and 4, For I acknowledge my transgressions. That's a good place to start. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. He says in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. But have you ever seen church, have you ever thought about what he says in verse 12? Have a look at this. He starts off by saying in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from you, from me. But then he says in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. You see, church, that's the point. Judicial forgiveness takes care of the fact of salvation. But relational forgiveness takes joy, takes care of the joy of it. Can I say that again? Judicial forgiveness takes care of the fact of salvation, but relational forgiveness takes care of the joy of it. And let me put it to you this way. I can be forgiven, but if I am sinful and unrepentant, in that sinfulness I forfeit the joy of the fullness of of that relationship and it's the same with the Lord if I'm in that position where I'm sinful and unrepentant I forfeit the joy of my salvation and you see that's the issue and that's why Jesus wants this to be a daily business for us he wants us to come before the throne of grace and confess our sins so that the joy of our intimacy and our connection with him isn't broken you see, sin, church, if left unchecked or unconfessed, just drives a wedge between you, between you and God. 
And it's not, you know, this attitude of I'm going to sin now anyway because I can come and just ask the Lord to forgive my sins every day anyway. I'm just going to live this life of sin. You can't do that. Because confession has the element of transformation linked to it. Right? Because if you don't want to change what you're confessing, it's not confession in the first place. Right? You're just saying sorry to God so that He can forgive you and you can carry on with the same behavior. And again, what Jesus wants, church, is not the words of confession. He wants the heart of confession. Right? He wants true confession from the heart because that's what brings relational forgiveness and develops real intimacy with the Lord. And that not only restores your joy, but it puts you and I in a place positionally where God can clearly instruct us and guide us and lead us along the best pathway for our lives. Because when we're close to Him in this intimate relationship, we can hear what He's saying. Church, we don't have time to to go much further this morning. But I want to close with a few verses from David in Psalm chapter 32 as he confesses his sins to the Lord. And I want you to see where it puts him positionally with God. And I want to encourage you, church, to meditate on this specific passage this week as you spend time with the Lord. Maybe we'll send out this passage on our of various platforms this week so that you can, you can do that. This is what it says. It says, Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. You are my hiding place. This is where it puts him positionally. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. And in that place of forgiveness, church, relational forgiveness, look at what the Lord says. I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Can we receive the word this morning, church? Can we thank the Lord for His Word today?